turn with me to Acts chapter 8 today. And uh, I learned something very valuable to me as a preacher last Sunday. And that is that uh, you all are willing to sit in here for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. I will try not to keep you here an, an hour and a half again. Uh, but it is good to know that you will uh, endure, in fact, enjoy. And really, it had to be a miracle if people don't believe that miracles still happen. I have not heard one complaint about the length of the service last Sunday. So the Lord had to be in it. Amen. Thank you all for being here today. Let's look to Acts chapter 8, and we'll begin reading with verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 38, So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for allowing us to meet in this place today to look to your word. It is perfect and holy. It is inerrant and inspired. And Lord, we look to you and your word to be taught. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts today, in me even in the act of preaching, that we would worship. And in the hearts of all those who hear, that we may be changed by the power of your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive this truth. And should there be one here who does not know you, I pray that they would be born again today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're working um, these Sundays.
through the Great Commission. And two Sundays ago, we began in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That would be a good passage of Scripture to commit to memory. This is our one job as the church of Jesus Christ called out an assembly from the world to do His work. We have this one command, make disciples of all the nations. And we've talked about it already, how that in this command to make disciples, there are three components, if you will. Three participles in that verse that describe what it is to make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Last week we considered the idea of going. It is the call of every Christian. It is God's call on each Christian's life to go. And just to be clear, to make sure there's no uh, misunderstanding here. You, yourself, say your name. It is your calling to go to make disciples, wherever that may be for you. And this week, I want us to consider this idea of baptize. But it really doesn't have that much to do with baptism. Baptism doesn't save anybody. If you have been dunked in water or sprinkled on the head or had it poured over, whatever you, know, you were taught baptism was... If that is what you are trusting in, to have a relationship with God, a place in heaven when you die, you've got it wrong. How many people can baptism save? Go ahead and answer me. None. Baptism saves no one. But when you read the New Testament, you read occasions that baptism took place, you'll find that the call to baptism assumes gospel proclamation. It always involves someone preaching or sharing the good news about Jesus. Every example of Christian baptism in the Bible is in the context of a person or a group of people who have believed the message of Jesus. The one requirement to be considered for baptism in this church and any other Bible-believing church ought to be, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that life is found only in His name? Do you believe that He died for sins and rose from the dead, and have you put your trust in Him and in Him alone? That is the prerequisite for baptism. We only baptize those who have believed the gospel. They can only believe the gospel if they've heard the gospel. And they can only hear the gospel if someone speaks the gospel or tells it to them. So the call to baptize the nations... This part of making disciples is also a call to boldly proclaim the gospel. It's a call to tell the good news about Jesus. 
Now, last week we talked about going. Obviously, there's some overlap here. But the call to proclaim the gospel is what sets Christian going apart from anybody else's going. Now, Bible-believing Christians aren't the only people who go on mission trips. Bible-believing Christians aren't the only people who love and serve their neighbors. What sets us apart? Mormons can dig a well. Jehovah's Witnesses can redo a roof. Catholics can take a medical team into a jungle. Atheists can be kind to their neighbors. So what's so special about the Christian call to go? The one thing that makes Christian missions Christian is that we use these good deeds, these opportunities to go for the purpose of making disciples. Starting with telling the gospel of Jesus. We use missions, we use good deeds, we use all the kindness and love that we can show to the world. Yes, we love people and we want to meet their needs, but we don't just want to meet physical needs. We use these opportunities as doors to share the gospel. In fact, if what we call missions fails to do that, fails to take that step into sharing the gospel, it ceases to be Christian missions and it's just a good deed. So this morning, we're talking about gospel proclamation in the context of baptism. One of my favorite gospel encounters in all of the New Testament is found right here in Acts chapter 8. I love it. I want to point just a few things out to you, and let's just start with some key words as we walk through the text. Here's four key words for you note takers. Providence, power, proclamation, and purpose. We'll visit each of these words along the way. Number one, providence. Take note of this as we read this text. The providence of God is trustworthy. Providence would be a good word to add to your vocabulary as a Christian. A lot of times we say things that, you know, uh, we were lucky that this happened. Or this happened by chance. Or, wow, that was a miracle. I mean, when you really just got an up-close parking spot. That's not a, that's not a miracle. <laughs> Providence is God at work in all the details of your life. God is at work in so many more things in your life than you are even aware of. I believe it was Pastor John Piper who said at one time that God is at work doing 10,000 things in your life at any given time and you might be aware of three of them. God is at work by His providence in every detail of our lives. Philip, in this passage, is commanded to leave Samaria and to take a desert road. Verse 26 says that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now, if you're not familiar with the context of Acts, the church has been established in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has come. They have received that power to be Christ's witnesses. Peter has preached and 3,000 were saved all in one day. They're selling their property. They're taking care of each other, meeting each other's needs. 
People are being added to the church by salvation every single day. The church in Jerusalem now numbers in the thousands. We might call it revival. And when things seemed to be going well, Jesus didn't just command them to preach in Jerusalem, did He? He said, no, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're preaching in Jerusalem and people are getting saved every day, why would you leave? We're just going to stay and start First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and enjoy ourselves till Jesus comes. Things are going well. But God, in His providence, made sure that the gospel spread beyond Jerusalem. What happened? Persecution. Stephen was killed. Saul of Tarsus. Ever heard of him? He starts uh, out carrying his grudge against the Christians. Christians are being arrested and beaten and killed and the church scatters. And while that's terrible and we don't wish persecution on anyone, we wouldn't want it for ourselves, God used it in His providence to make sure that the gospel spread. And as you read the next few chapters in the book of Acts, you find that preaching is going on in all of Judea. People are being saved in the whole region. One particular preacher made it to Samaria. His name was Philip. And even in Samaria, this place that the Jews considered them half-breeds. They were just nobodies. They were the scum of the earth. Nobody wanted anything to do with the Samaritan. Well, guess what? They get the same Holy Spirit that the Jews have. Philip starts preaching. Samaritans are getting saved. Now we've got First Baptist Church of Samaria. And things are going really well there. And then, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip. He says, go down toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke makes this note in his record. This is Desert. Now, after all that success in Samaria, a walk all alone on a desert road in the Middle East might have seemed meaningless. Why am I here? I mean, I don't know how long Philip walked down this road, but I'm sure, I mean, it wouldn't have taken me long to start questioning, you know, do you think I understood God right? I mean, I'm out out here in the middle of the desert, by myself. Things were going so well back there. Maybe I should go back. They'd probably let me preach tonight. Some of you may at this time feel like you're on a desert road. You know, maybe you can look back at at times in your life and maybe even in, in the ministry that God's called you to do where things were going a lot better than they are right now. And this was on my mind a lot this week just because of all the things that are going on in our church right now. And we've just had this wave of sickness. It's like we survived COVID and now... You know, everything else is going to get us. And some of you, that's really hitting close to home. And you feel like you're on a desert road and it doesn't make sense. And it might even seem meaningless. 
God, why can't we go back to the way things were? Things were better before. But we have to remember, just as Philip is about to learn, that the providence of God is always at work, even in the things that seem meaningless. Now, Philip, he met an unexpected traveler on the desert road. Verse 27 says, So he arose and went. He was obedient. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. That's a lot of modifiers to describe this man. Was returning. Finally got to the verb. Now this eunuch from Ethiopia, he was a prominent man. He, he worked under Candace the queen. Now if you do your study, Candace wasn't one particular queen, but Candace was the title given to all the queens. Sort of like we think of the emperor as Ro of Rome as Caesar. All the queens of Ethiopia were known as Candace. That was their title. You see, in Ethiopia, the men, the kings, they were too busy doing really kingly business like, you know, parties and socializing and, and things like that, that the queens handled all the business of the country. They did all the work. Has much really changed? I don't know. But Candace the queen, she's in charge of, of the whole kingdom. She's really the one that people go to when they need something. And this man works for the queen. He has charge of all her treasury. He's an important man. He's a prominent man. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, he couldn't have been a, a full-blown proselyte, according to the Jews, because he was a eunuch. But he was considered a God-fearer. He was someone who at least recognized that Israel's God was an important God, if not the only God. And he had taken the time, he had taken this chunk out of his busy schedule, no doubt, to travel the desert road to Jerusalem to worship. And at some point while he was there, he must have bought a scroll at the souvenir shop. And the guy behind the counter said, take Isaiah, it's a good one. So he buys a copy of Isaiah, most likely, and brings it back. And on the road, he's reading it all the way. Imagine this, as a Christian who's been preaching telling people the good news about Jesus, looking for every opportunity. You find yourself out here in the middle of the desert, and all of a sudden you see some dust being kicked up as a chariot goes along. He just so happened to be in the same area as Philip at the same time. He just so happened to be close enough that Philip being on foot could catch up to him. He just so happened... To have just come from Jerusalem to worship and be thinking about the things of God. He just so happened to be reading Isaiah. And he just so happened to land in chapter 53 at the time that Philip approached him. Coincidence? The old saying, right? I think not. <laughs> this is a very obvious act of providence. On God's part. He just happened to meet the traveler. He just happened to be mindful of spiritual things. He just happened to be reading Isaiah 53 at the exact moment that Philip could hear him reading. 
So what does Philip do? He does what any good preacher would do, right? Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? I used to work in fast food. It was the highlight of my teenage years, let me tell you. Uh, fry cook, you know, kept pimples and zits all the time. It was ridiculous. But we didn't have a break room for some reason. Makes a lot of sense. So we got to sit on our breaks in the booth in the dining room in the corner next to the bathroom. That was the one we could sit at on our lunch break to eat, do whatever we wanted to, till it was time to go back to work. Well, at the time, I carried my Bible to work with me and on my lunch breaks, I'd eat and try to spend a little bit of time in the Word. And I was reading in that back corner booth next to the bathroom. And a lady walks by and she just seizes the moment. She's got the Philip mindset. And she quoted it to me in the old King James. She said, understandest thou what thou readest? I should have said, how can I? Except some man showed me. <laughs> I don't know. While that's a little corny, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend taking that approach, I do have to give her credit for seizing the opportunity to talk about the Lord. Philip saw this chariot going by. He heard him reading. The Spirit says, run after it, catch up and talk to this guy. And Philip could have made every excuse in the world. I am tired. I've been walking in this desert all day. It's hot. I'm hungry. I'm not going to chase after this obviously wealthy and important guy to see if he needs my help. But he sees the opportunity. Now we Christians have to, we must be mindful of the opportunities that God puts right in front of us every single day. God wants people to hear the gospel and believe, believe, and He's called you to tell people the gospel. Do you not think He is at some way orchestrating encounters where that can happen? We just have to open our eyes. God is putting opportunities before us every day to share the gospel. If we will just open our eyes, ask the Spirit to guide us, we will see opportunities everywhere, and we cannot pass them up. We must take advantage of those windows when they open. So we see the providence of God at work. Number two, that second key word is power. Notice the power of Scripture. The power of Scripture is evident. Verse 31, he says, How can I unless someone guides me? He asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Man, I would love to walk up on somebody reading that passage. It's never happened. It's never been that easy. <laughs> what better passage could he have been reading when Philip approached him? 
The gospel of Jesus' sinless life, His substitutionary death, His victorious resurrection was being preached by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And this was the passage that the man had come to when he met Philip. The Word of God was already at work in him before Philip ever even knew he would cross paths with him. The power for evangelism, the power for sharing this good news, preaching the the gospel is in, the power is in the Word. The power for reaching the world is in the Bible. It's not in human eloquence or in our ability to articulate the finer tenets of soteriology, but it is in the Word of the living God. Our efforts for evangelism must be centered and grounded in God's Word. This is what can change someone's life. And it's the only thing that can change someone's life. The Word had prepared the man to hear the Gospel. And he had the humility to ask Philip for help. He said there in verse 31, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And then he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now he could have been a prideful, arrogant Man here in his position of leadership. You know, he's in his caravan. He's got servants and and other officials around him. And this random stranger in the desert says, Do you understand what you're reading? He could have said, Of of course I do. Go away. (laughs) Leave me to my study. But he didn't. The Word had already been at work in him so that when Philip asked, he said, How can I understand it unless someone helps me? He asked him to get in the chariot with him. And then in verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? He had the humility to ask questions. Now we know the answer to this. This is the message of Jesus that He carried our griefs. He bore our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. The Word of God was at work in this man's heart, and it's the Word of God that will do the work in any evangelistic encounter. Here's the encouragement for you when you share the gospel. It is not up to you to convince a person to follow Jesus. It is not up to you to reach into someone's mind and into their heart and persuade them that Jesus is the only way. Yes, we we try to persuade them with our words. We make good, sound arguments. But the real power, what really changes a person is when they hear what God has said. It's the Word of God. That's the power. Number three, the proclamation. Proclamation of the gospel is necessary. It has to happen. 
Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Notice the two essential parts of gospel proclamation. One, it has to be rooted in scripture. And two, it is centered on Jesus. He said, beginning at this scripture, Philip preached Jesus to him. When we share the gospel, it must be faithful to what the Bible says. We must accurately handle it. We must use it as it was intended. Not to accomplish our own purposes or to try to get our own way with people, but that it may accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. We must faithfully represent God's Word. The best thing to do is just memorize it. So that when you're called upon or when you have the opportunity to speak it, you can just open your mouth and let it go. But even if you can't remember, now what book was that in? And You remember the book, but maybe, I'm not sure the chapter or the verse, or does that book even have that many chapters? And You know, don't, don't fumble or don't worry about that. Because if you're putting God's Word in, God's Word is going to come out, even if you don't say it verbatim. We have to be faithful to what the Scripture has says. We said we must faithfully represent it. But also, when we share the Gospel, our message must center on Jesus. Philip preached to the man, Jesus. He did not preach the man-centered benefits of salvation. The Gospel is not, believe on Jesus and He will give you peace and hope and joy and happiness. If you're a Christian, you know that He will give you peace and joy and hope and happiness. But that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is not, if you believe in Jesus, you don't have to go to hell. We know that if a person believes in Jesus, their sins are forgiven and they don't have to go to hell. But that's not the Gospel. The gospel is the demonstration of the glory of the one who died to save us. The gospel is not about us, it's about Jesus. The message is about Jesus. And on His glory. Paul told the Corinthians, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. Romans 1.16, he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Here's what Philip did. He preached Jesus to him. When I share the gospel, it sounds something like this. You've sinned against, you've heard me, right? You've sinned against God. You've offended Him and you deserve punishment. But God loved you and Jesus came and died for you. And on the third day He rose from the dead. Repent and trust in Him and He will save you. That's the gospel. But Philip preached Jesus to him. Now, the word preached could be a little bit deceiving because when I say that Philip preached Jesus to him, you think, well, he got a suit on and stood behind the pulpit and let him have it. Like you're getting right now. The word in Greek is euangelizo. It just means he told him good news. 
The gospel is good news. You don't have to stand up with a three-point outline and a poem at the end and preach to somebody with your hands in the air. Though we need that. (laughs) He just good-newsed him. Have you ever told good news? Of course you have. I've got a new grandbaby. Want to see pictures? I remember after Jonah was born, a, a lady, her, her son went to school with me, and um, they had just had a baby too. And she said, I heard you just had a new baby. I said, yeah, we did. He's, and she said, you, I got one too. You want to see? She, she didn't care about mine. She just needed a door open to talk about hers. She just needed to talk about her grandbaby. She was happy to tell good news. Hey, Chick-fil-A's doing free breakfast today. You've got to get over there. If you hear about that, tell me. It's an important day. That's good news. Jesus died for me and forgave all my sins. Can I tell you about that? It's good news. Look at the world. People need good news. The world's dark and it's going to pot. You know, that's true. I kind of hate to see how the world is going, but... You know, I actually believe in Jesus, and, and I believe the Bible says that He's actually in control of all this, and He's going to work it out for good. Can I tell you about Jesus? That's not difficult. If for some reason, in the moment it is, your heart starts to beat out of your chest, and you start sweating and wringing your hands, I don't think I can do it. But it's the best news you could ever tell. And there's plenty of occasion to tell good news. Because there's a lot of bad news. I lost my job. Man, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. And, you know, things aren't always easy. But He's always carried me through. Could I tell you about Jesus? I've got a loved one who's sick. Or maybe someone who's died. And that's a terrible tragedy. You know, I'm really sorry to hear about that. Let me know if there's any way I can help you. But has anybody ever told you about Jesus and what the Bible says about death and what happens after? So many occasions to just tell good news. Philip preached to him Jesus. We have the best news, we have a responsibility. And a privilege to share it. Proclamation must happen. We must tell it if the world will hear. Number four, last key word here, purpose. The purpose of evangelizing or telling the good news is that others would follow Jesus. We're getting closer to baptism here, okay? Verse 36, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, someone says to you, what hinders me from being baptized? Why shouldn't I be baptized? What do you tell them? The answer is actually 
Really easy. Paul said in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here it is in a sentence in verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the prerequisite for baptism. That's the message we go out to proclaim. Apparently, Philip had made that very clear. And at some point, he must have thrown in the Great Commission because the man knew that the next step was to be baptized. This man believed. And he, was, he wasn't just ready to profess faith with his mouth, but to live in obedience to Jesus. As soon as he believed, he wanted to be baptized. The command is to believe, and the first thing Jesus wants a believer to do is be baptized. Well, what's keeping me from being baptized? Look, here's water. And in front of this whole caravan of officials and servants and all those who had traveled with him to Jerusalem, the humility in this man that God has produced is amazing. High-ranking officials wouldn't just do something like this in front of all their... uh, Whatever they are. (laughs) Servants. Subordinates. Verse 38 says, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. We preach the gospel. We boldly proclaim the good news. We tell people the good news about Jesus because we want them to believe in Jesus and have their sins forgiven, right? But baptism isn't the finish line. It's the starting line. We want people to be saved and follow Jesus obediently with their lives. Let's wrap things up. I'll ask you three questions in conclusion. First question, if you are still living in your sin and unbelief, will you repent and put your trust in Jesus today? This is the same Jesus who was predicted by Isaiah 700 years prior to his birth. This is the same Jesus that Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch on a desert road. He's the Jesus who died for you. And loves you and calls you to believe on Him. If you haven't done that, I implore you to turn from your sin and put your trust in Him today. Second question, if you have put your trust in Jesus, and you've been been born again, you live a life of obedience to following Him, are you living a life of obedience to follow Him? First of all, have you been baptized? Because if... You won't get wet. How can you handle any greater responsibility that God would give you? If you neglect His first command, you really can't be trusted by Him with anything more. So if you're saved, if you're born again, are you living in obedience? Third question. If you've believed on Jesus for salvation, you're trying to live a life of obedience to Him, are you 
right now, daily, looking for those divine opportunities that God gives to tell others about Him. We all have people in our lives who need to hear this good news. And if we don't tell them, they may never hear. So let's open our eyes. Ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see. Ask God to coordinate those encounters. Simple challenge. Look for one person to share the gospel with this week. And ask a Christian friend to hold you to it. Boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, for its power in our lives, for the life-giving transformation that you have produced in us by saving us. And Lord, now those of us who have trusted you with our eternal souls desire to please you. We desire to live a life of obedience and lead others to you. Lord, give us courage. Give us boldness. And give us clear eyes to see those opportunities you put before us. And Lord, should there be someone here who has not yet repented and put their trust in the Lord Jesus, may they see the condition of their soul and the judgment that awaits. And may they see the loving, resurrected Christ who cares for them and desires to save them. Do your work in our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen.